everybody get ready for Foodie and the Beast with David Nikki Nellis. A foodie born and bred, my wife Nikki loves chatting up chefs, dining out, and insider industry buzz. And my husband David thinks a great meal is nothing but a good burger, a frosty brew, and a check for under $20. Cause he is cheap. Well, maybe so, but Foodie married Beast anyway, and together we've got the food and wine variety show that has everyone talking. It's Foodie and the Beast, and we are on now. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis on a beautiful weekend, I hope. <laughs> I hope it stays that way, no more snow. Uh, we got a great show for you today. Deb Moser's on with us from Central Farm Markets. Uh, DC Saki goes, Raiko Hirai has a mission. Uh, she wants to connect Saki lovers and Saki um, uh, interested folks in the DC area to help them experiment with, enjoy all the different ways that Saki can be tasted and, and, and enjoyed itself. Uh, the newest volume of um, uh, Jacques Pepin Foundation's Cook with Jacques Pepin and Friends, Volume 2, is not out. Uh, he cooks with 14 culinary luminaries from around the world. And uh, on the show today is his son-in-law, an accomplished chef on his own right, and also uh, the executive director of the Jacques Pepin Foundation, Raleigh Wason, is on to talk about the new cookbook and what the foundation does uh, uh, in the community. Have you heard about Clubhouse? It's the invitation-only audio chat networking app for listening in on conversations and interviews with experts on all sorts of subjects. A business strategist and success coach, Rita Goodrow, who is on Clubhouse all the time, joins us with all the details because you're going to want to know more and more about Clubhouse. And Marcel Afram is the celebrated former executive chef at Michelle Starred Maidan, drawing on West Asian roots to celebrate the cuisine of ancestors. Marcel leads the team at Shababi Palestinian Rotisserie Chicken, paying homage to Palestinian cuisine. We'll hear all about that later. Uh, Nick, before we get into Deb Moser, do you have a couple things you want to I say? I do. So I want to remind everybody to check out this week's The List, Are You On It.com, the online museum that lists every food and wine event going on in the D.C. metro area. We had so much fun this week. We invited Little Sesame to come to the Kensington neighborhood, and they brought over 30 orders uh, for everybody in our neighborhood that wanted to participate. Neighborhood drops are a thing, and if you're looking for ways to, first of all, not have to cook one evening, but also to help area restaurants, Call them up, reach out to your neighbors, get a whole group together, and most restaurants will deliver for large orders. And this way you're feeding your neighborhood and you're also helping out a restaurant. So I advise everybody to check that out and see if you can do it. We had a delicious meal from Little Sesame. And also, don't forget, there are so much food and wine events happening in the D.C. metro area. So many new restaurants are opening. A lot of restaurants are coming soon. And there is... Um, so much happening coming up. We've got St. Pat's Day. We've got Easter. We've got Passover. We have cherry blossom season. So all these holidays give us good reasons to celebrate with good food and wine. And on that point, I want to bring in Deb Moser, who joins us every week to talk about what's at market. Hey, Deb. Hey, good morning. How are you? Good. Good morning. Okay, so Deb, spring is sprunging. Tell us what's happening at the market. We hope. Well, spring is sprunging at the market as well. Um, <laughs> We start today with our spring hours. So we're going back in Bethesda to 9 a.m. Um, the end of April, Pike will reopen. So, and then Nova will go back also the, the first Sunday in April. We'll go back to its spring hours. I know that's confusing. It's all on our website. Mm -hmm. But we have uh, St. Patrick's Day coming up. And next weekend is the weekend order. So your soda breads, your all your goodies that you love. Um, we have some great things. I know Patisserie Poupon's going to have some of those great cakes with all the surprises in them. 
and breads. So get, you know, you want to get your orders in for those. Also, Passover and Easter are going to spring on us as, as quickly as they come. And I want to remind everybody, you can talk to your vendors now about getting your orders in now, especially those lamb orders from Springfield and Painted Hand. Uh, you want to get those in because those are going to go quickly. There's only a limited supply. Uh, Deb, quick question. Does any of the vendors make uh, or do any of the vendors make matzo? Um, no, okay. they, they okay. don't. Uh, but they do have Passover items. Okay. So um, especially um, the palette, uh, Chocolatier's palette, she does a whole box of truffled chocolates in, uh, and she has matzo flavored, and she has horseradish flavored. They're really kind of cool. cool. So it's uh, it's a nice addition to your dinner. But you will find a lot of different things um, without leaven in them for um, for Passover. Okay, Deb, one yes. question: How hard is it to make matzo? I mean, the Israelites, um, the Israelites slapped it together on their way out of Egypt. I mean, somebody's got to make matzo. I'm I think just you saying. Need sun, you need sun and a hot stone. But if you don't have that, I know you can buy it. Uh, and we have some pretty good bakers in town baking them. So uh, we haven't had it at the markets, but you can find it around. All right. Thanks, Deb. Everybody go to Central Farm Markets because it's a hoot. It's a, it's a happening when you go there. It's fun. All right. So let's talk sake. Uh, uh, Raiko Hirai has, has I, I guess you're on a mission. Now, I don't know why you're on a mission for sake, but I have to say we have acquired a taste for it. Um, and more people I know are because it's at lots of restaurants around town. And uh, you want to bring everybody to the world of sake. What? How did this all get started? Well, can I just interrupt to say that it was the announcement of the Cherry Blossom uh festival just uh, on Monday. So sake is sort of really big in the DC area right now because of the huge celebration. Am I wrong? Yes, no, no, you're not wrong. Uh, but I, I I, still have a lot to do, a lot to go, a lot to go with that uh, mission. So yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm so glad that I get to talk to um, uh, everyone about the DC sake goal. So can I just briefly mention about what we do so, sure, so that's what we want okay so so dc sakeko is an online shop that specializes in alcohol beverage from japan so we primarily carry only sake in our inventory right now and uh, have almost uh, 100 uh, premium sake from 31 different prefectures uh, in japan so we opened our door uh, back in june 2020 in the middle of the pandemic um, but it has been an amazing experience discovering the fellow sake lovers and sake curious people in the area. So um, our mission is to keep discovering the sake loving community in DC area and experiment and enjoy many collaborations and connecting and bringing people together uh, through sake. So that's why DC Sake Coast so for people who really don't know about sake, can you tell us a little bit about the wine, what it's made of, how it's processed? And, you know, I think some, you know, some Americans have only had that hot sake, you know, which <laughs> yes. is really not good sake. So can you talk about sort of the what we're looking for in really good sake? Yeah, so so sake is when it comes to, if you ask Japanese person, what is sake, we, people will say it's a culture. But uh, uh, actually sake, when it comes down to it, it's all about rice and wine. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a fermented beverage that um, uh, it's usually a little bit shy above the 
uh, white wine in alcohol level, like about 16%. And, um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful beverage with so much potentials and so much histories and stories from the brewers that are still not very well known here. Mm-hmm. And people are just really kind of starting to discover uh, the sake in this area. Well, but because people don't know what they're supposed to be tasting in a sake, right? So yeah. just, you know, we're, this country is brought up more on distilled, you know, beverages mm-hmm. um, instead of fermented, right? You know, like if you think of, um, uh, you know, whiskeys and vodkas and et cetera, right? So tell us a, a little bit about, about what we're looking for in flavor and how important is the terroir, you know, like with wine or where the grains are grown? How important is that to sake? Okay. So the sake, the interesting thing about sake is it has to do more with the water. So the regions, um, uh, you know, where there's a beautiful water, you could probably find the hot spring and the sake breweries. Uh, the rice, um, not like a wine, the rice could be grown in many places, different places in Japan. Mm-hmm. So they would choose, they will harvest the rice and they will bring the rice you know, they will use a certain sake rice to, you know, in the many, many different breweries. Mm-hmm. But what really makes the, um, um, the, the flavors, it's just the water and the rice, but the flavor is from anything from fruity to fruity, aromatic to robust, earthy. Mm-hmm. And sake is also be able to enjoy with the, so many different temperatures. And, you know, there's just so many, um, potential, you know, uh, possibilities that how you can enjoy sake. And uh, people associate uh, two things. People associate sake with uh, uh, Japanese food, like sushi and sashimi. But sake, yeah, sake could go really actually with uh, barbecues, pasta, uh, grilled meat, tomato sauce, cheese, anything that, you know, Chinese food, uh, Thai food, it's just that it's a uh, when you think of rice, what does rice goes with? It right, goes with so many everything. Things. Yeah, so that's how much you can enjoy. So is um is sake a low alcohol drink? Well, yeah, it, it's clear, and you drink in a small glass, so people think it's like a shot. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not a shot. Um, it's actually about sixteen percent in alcohol. So, okay. yeah, so it's, and it's not meant to uh, drink all at once. It's uh, meant to sip and enjoy the pairings with the food. Are there, are there, you know, people now, the flavored vodkas and this and that, are there flavored sakes as well? Yes, they are. are. There are some uh, breweries that are making uh, flavored sake, uh, but as a natural process, more of a maybe plum sake. Mm-hmm. But majority still um, are uh, rice and water. Rice and water, just the classic. But within that classic sake, there are so many different varieties that people could still enjoy. Well, I want to go back to something you said earlier about sake, which is that it can be enjoyed with all sorts of cuisines. That it's not limited to just sushi, which is kind of how Americans have been introduced yes. to sake. So, how do you, given your new business that you just 
launched in the middle of a pandemic. How do you uh, introduce the flavors of sake and the wines of sake to chefs and restaurateurs and, and advise them how to pair it with their food so that their patrons order it? Yeah, so so right now, just like um, um, just like uh, years ago with wine, um, you know, people are just discovering the sake. Um, and so when you are asked, like, how do you how do you choose which kind of wine do you like? Then people would in general these days will know, oh, I like Carbonet, I like Pinot Noir, you know. So I tend to go with what wines do you like? Do you like white wine or do you like red wine? If people say that they like the uh, white wine, then I tend to introduce them to more fruity, uh, aromatic, lighter, clean flavor of sake. And then uh, when you, uh, with, uh, for example, like with the meat, like red wine, same thing with sake, it really goes well with a uh, uh, robust, uh, heavier flavors of sake. So uh, right now we are still, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to do a lot of collaborations with uh, different chefs. I was listening to Debbie earlier and uh, so many, just by hearing the, what they have in the market, I just see like, would love to try to bring together that collaborations. Well, I think collaborations are an amazing idea. Um, you know what? We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll tell everybody where we can find you and how they can get in on all your fabulous sakes. This okay. is David and Nikki Nellis. It's Foodie and the Beast. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a minute. All right. We're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. Uh, Raiko, where do people get sake? I mean, we, we order it in restaurants and we happen to have plenty of it here. But what kind of distribution do you have around the D.C. area? So we are only allowed to deliver in DC area. Uh, people can find our selection at the, our website, um, www.dcsake.com, easy, easy. And um, uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I purposely did that, but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, so they can find it there. And um, uh, we do have a couple uh, for those folks that lives in Maryland and Virginia in metropolitan area. I do have a, a few pickup places in DC that they can uh, put that address on there and, uh, and then have them pick them up from there. So um, yeah. Okay, tell everybody your Instagram handle. Uh, the Instagram is DC Sake. Great, thank you so much. So up next, we're talking to Chef Raleigh Wiesen, uh, who is with the Jacques Pepin Foundation. I have such a lovely story about Jacques Pepin. Before I even got into the food, wine, hospitality industry, I was at a dinner and got seated next to him and spent such a miraculous evening chatting with him about his cooking and his experiences and his travels. And... Um, it's a glorious memory, and I'm so thrilled to be one of those people who have it. So, Raleigh, I want to thank you so much for joining us this morning. Of um, course. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you wound up with the Jacques Pan Foundation. Well, um, I, I actually have a good in. I am married to Claudine Pepin, so I am Jacques' son-in-law. So that, that was a great place to start. And, um, you know, a few years back, Claudine and I were thinking – uh, that we had a great opportunity to have a positive impact using Jacques' notoriety and, and uh, influencing people through culinary education and the love of technique and the love of our craft and the love of cooking. 
And so we started the Jacques Pepin Foundation in 2016, really started to get going in 2017 with our first fundraising event, which was a collaborative partnership event with Fair Start, which is an organization out of Seattle that was engaged in culinary training for uh, underserved populations and people with barriers to employment, such as homelessness, previous incarceration, problems with substance abuse, et cetera. So that was really the genesis of the of the Jacques Pepin Foundation. And how did so were you just giving funds to the organization? Were you helping them with training and things of that nature, like a DC Central Kitchen or something like that? Uh, how were you guys engaging? Was it just a fundraising arm or were you looking to actually get in there and help? Well, so the so the interesting thing was um, when uh, when Claudine and I started the foundation, I would I I'm also a trained chef. I was in industry for 20 years, and I teach at Johnson and Wales. I've been at Johnson and Wales for just over 10 years now. And um, at the time at which we were starting the foundation, I was volunteering my time at the Rhode Island Food Bank. We live in just outside of Providence, where um, where Johnson and Wales is, mm -hmm. and I was volunteering my time at the Rhode Island Food Bank in their culinary training program. And we went to Jacques and it was kind of interesting. We had a whole list of different possible things that we could do. And we said, we're gonna start this foundation. And you know, we have a lot of options. We could be we could focus on you know childhood nutrition or school lunch programs or trying to help high school students get scholarships to pursue uh, culinary arts in higher ed or helping people finish their internships in uh, in Europe and get a European training or helping people who have been incarcerated get jobs through culinary training. And he said, that's the one, that's what I wanna do. I really wanna help people who wanna get back into the world, who wanna be, uh, become active parts of society to get the training that they need through culinary in order to get a job and get back on their feet. And so um, his desire to do that and my working with the Rhode Island Food Bank at the same time, and then our understanding and our connection that we were getting from Fair Start in Seattle all sort of combined to uh, lead us in this direction to help improve lives and strengthen communities through culinary education. Well, it's, a, <clears throat> it's an amazing platform, right, that you have. I mean, first you have the, you have your education and what you already know, you have the fame of Jacques and your wife. And, um, you know, one of the things I, I think that people are really realizing about the hospitality world is that the education you have, chefs know how to feed people. Exactly. Yeah. Know how to train people, right? Because exactly. you know, if you could start out at a dishwasher in a restaurant and you can work all the way up, you know, it's it's a it's a it's an incredible art form to work in the restaurant industry. So it I always think it's so amazing about the skills that are able to be taught and then the livelihood that one can have within the industry. Um, Absolutely. And, and we really think of, we really think of ourselves as problem solvers as well. I mean, we, you know, we love Jose Andreas. He's a dear friend of ours. The work that he does through World Central Kitchen is, is seemingly miraculous, especially for people who are outside of the food industry. It's like, oh my God, how does he do that? But for people that are inside the food industry, like, oh yeah, wow, uh, Puerto Rico just got leveled by a hurricane. Well, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to find who all the chefs are. I'm going to find which kitchens are still working. I'm going to find out where the food comes from. I'm going to start making food and then I'm going to deliver it. And for, you know, for a chef, that's just kind of normal stuff. I mean, I'm not trying to diminish what he does because it's yeah, truly amazing, but it's just kind of normal stuff to say like, oh yeah, I'm going to organize all these people and we're just going to produce a lot of food and we're going to feed a lot of people and we're going to distribute it. Yeah, that's, that's what we do. And, but to your, to your larger point of what we are trying to do through the Jacques Pen Foundation, like you said, um, we have a unique set skill set from Jacques, not only Jacques' notoriety, but I think arguably 
And, you know, obviously I can't be completely objective, but arguably the best culinary educator of our time, the best culinary educator of the last 50 years, you know, he's, uh, you know, 30 plus cookbooks and hundreds of hours of television instruction. You know, he's arguably the best educator that is out there. And then my culinary training plus my, um, my teaching experience at Johnson and Wales, all of those things coming together and, th and thinking about like, okay, well, what can we do? How can we help people? And then as we started into this space, what was really interesting was we started to discover not only was there a community kitchen that was teaching people at the Rhode Island Food Bank, but there were over a hundred, 120 of these organizations all across the country. And what was really interesting to us was that um, a lot of these organizations didn't know about each other and they weren't actually sharing best practices. And what we really wanted to do was get everybody on the same page to think about how do we do this better? How do we do this the best way that we possibly can? What's the proper length of a program? What should people actually learn in order to be successful at this and, and get a great job when they get out of it? That is so, uh, it's so important. It is amazing how people weren't sharing, right? Because like lots of people have great ideas, but sometimes you're reinventing the wheel when you don't need to. Sometimes you're exactly. part of that wheel that's already in action. Yeah, and you know, DC Central Kitchen is, is a great example. They, they were doing terrific stuff. I mean, that's a really, really excellent community kitchen, a really excellent uh, fighter yep. for, of it's food and security. Right. Yeah, and, but, uh, and, and they were part of a network that was created by Fair Start, which um, goes under the program heading of Catalyst Kitchens. So in the Catalyst Kitchens network, there's about 80 different organizations, uh, DC Central Kitchen being one of them. And then there was the Feeding America network that had another 40 kitchens and trying to get bring those two uh, groups together. And then also, because now we are now we've been able to grow enough that we can actually offer grants to community kitchens. We are getting a lot of uh, requests and people are coming to us and soliciting uh, granting from us, which is allowing us to see that there's probably twice as many community kitchens as we know out there because they keep coming out of the woodwork to find us, which allows us to connect them all together and get everybody under this great umbrella, this big tent of we're all doing the same thing together. Let's share resources. You know, here's a bunch of Jacques Pepin's cookbooks. Here's a bunch of videos. Here's a bunch of curricular tools. Here's other people that are doing the same stuff that are answering the questions that you're trying to answer. So let's all get together and, and make this better for everyone. Well, to that point, you guys have just launched Cook with Jacques Pepin and Friends Volume 2. So what is it? How did you guys curate it? And how does it affect your fundraising? So that was a really interesting thing. You know, 2020 was an incredibly difficult year for us, for everybody. So, so heartbreaking that so many restaurants had to close or temporarily close, that so many people lost their jobs. But for nonprofits like us and many other nonprofits, a big source of our revenue, our annual revenue, was these annual in-person events. And we, of course, had to cancel all of our events. And so then we started thinking, well, what is it that we're going to do in order to continue to generate revenue, especially in this time of such great need? We really needed to do something. And, uh, and also then there was Jacques. So Jacques is like, oh, I have to stay in my house for a few months. Hmm, maybe I'll shoot a few videos. We'll see what happens. I'll just, I'll just, you know, we'll just shoot some videos. I'm, I'll do some recipes. Never, well, run, never one to sit idly by, right? Like, yeah, yeah he, he's, he's totally. It's not what he's doing. Yeah, he's totally the energizer bunny. He never runs out of uh, never runs out of ideas or energy. Well, 175 videos later. Wow. Right between uh, April and October of last year, he shot 175 videos, and that series goes under the name of Jacques Pepin Cooking at Home. 
-hmm. And then after he was shooting these videos, he said, oh, you know, I need some help um, actually like getting these processed. So we had a, a video processing team that was working for the JPF on curricular materials. We said, yeah, well, we'll activate that team and we'll get them to to uh, produce these videos with the help of the Jacques Pen Foundation and with uh, Claudine's oversight. And then we also said, huh, you know, all of our chef friends are doing this too. Everybody's shooting videos at home. So what if we reached out to a few people and said, hey, uh, we see that you've been shooting these videos. Could you maybe shoot one that we could use for fundraising and just give a short shout out to Jacques or a shout out to the JPF and the work that we're doing? Well, everybody said yes. And I mean, everybody, Jose Andreas, Thomas Keller, Rachel Ray, Padma Lakshmi, Gail Simmons, Tom Colicchio, Andrew Zimmern, Ming Tsai, Sarah Moulton, you, you, Nina Compton, Kwame Onowachi. You're name dropping all over the place. Drop, drop, and, drop, drop, drop. <laughs> but all of these people said, yes, we would love to make a video for the Jacques Penn Foundation. We would love Jacques. Jacques was so influential, right? So all everybody came back to us and said, yes, we want to make a video. What do we do next? And mm -hmm. so now, now I'm looking at like, okay, I have content videos from a hundred chefs coming in. What are we going to do with this? And so the, ne the next piece was, well, how do we actually turn this into something that's going to raise funds for us and, that, and that's going to benefit the community? And so what we decided to do was create a video recipe book. So that's what's getting, uh, our volume two of the video recipe book is getting released on Tuesday, uh, March 9th. And, but then we had the next problem of, okay, now we have this video recipe book, which is this amazing website that we built that's really, really beautiful to look at, that's really easy to navigate, that lists all these chefs, headshots, bios, the recipe is right there next to the video. That's really one of the coolest things about it is you can watch the video and cook from the recipe at the same time. Right. Now, now how do we quote unquote sell it to make it a fundraiser? And we reached out to some publishing friends and partners and they said, well, I, nobody likes digital books. That's not going to go anywhere. You can't sell that. People give away digital books. You go on Amazon, there's a thousand digital books for free. You're not going to be able to sell it. And so we scratched our heads a little bit and said, well, what if the JPF created membership and we made as the biggest carrot for becoming a member of the JPF, this video recipe book that features all of these amazing chefs. And so that's how we got to where we are now. And we launched JPF membership in November. And to date, we've signed up just over 2,000 members. I'm a member. And I'm awesome. a member. So listen, we do have to wrap up. I'm so sorry. I could sure. talk to you for so much longer because I have so many more questions. Tell no everybody, please, where they can become a member. So you can go to our website, jp.foundation. The actual sign up for members is members.jp.foundation. It's really affordable. It's only $40 to get started. Of course, uh, all the money that we take in goes to support our programs. Our granting program uh, distributed $275,000 last year to community kitchens all across the country. There's probably one in your community. There's definitely one if you're in DC. We've granted to DC Central Kitchen multiple times. And we would love to have you as a member. Please come and join us. Enjoy all these great videos and happy cooking. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Everybody needs to sign up for a membership. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, have you heard about Clubhouse? Everybody's heard about Clubhouse. We're going to find out exactly what you're going to do on there. We'll be back in just a sec. And we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. So I don't know if you've heard about Clubhouse, Clubhouse, but it's this like new thing. It's invitation only. It's super exclusive, except everybody's got an invite and everybody's on it. And uh, I recently got on it about, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. A friend of mine was like, you've got to get on Clubhouse. You need to be on there. And I have to be honest. I got on there and I was like, I need another time stop. 
like a hole in my head between Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, my five children, my dogs, and uh, my own social media and my work, who could find time for Clubhouse? Well, in with me today is Rita Goodrow. She knows all about Clubhouse and she is gonna give us a whole one-on-one, a one-on-one, and maybe a one-on-one and how you should be using it. So hi, Rita, how are you? Good, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. So Rita, tell us a little bit of your background that led you to something like a Clubhouse. Yeah, so I was I was actually a business and real estate attorney for about 13 years and simultaneously with that built a large community in the DC area called Singles in the Suburbs, a singles group in the area. So community was a big thing for me. I mean, that community grew to like one of the largest communities that that existed in, in the singles world in the DC area. And then that turned into a longer story, but it turned into me leaving the law to become a dating coach and that business grew very quickly. And within a year, I had stepped full-time into business coaching, telling people what I had done to grow that business and how I made that successful, which I've been doing for like six years. So one of the foundations so of why my singles group was successful and why my current business is, is successful is because I built it on the back of relationships and community. And I think that when people think of Clubhouse, they think of it like just another social media platform. But if they reframe their thinking that this is one of the best ways to create meaningful relationships with people that in an intentional way that I can give value to, but who can also give value to me, the use of the platform changes and how you're coming at it changes. It's not just another place to come and promote your stuff. It's real authentic connected relationships that are happening there. And that's why I'm on Clubhouse. Okay. Well, so we're going to back up because I mean, I'm ready to dive in and be like, you know, I totally got Clubhouse as a networking platform. To me, people keep comparing it to like talk Twitter, but I don't think it's talk Twitter. Mm -hmm. I think it's talk LinkedIn. That's what it sounds like to me. Um, but let's, for the uninitiated or yes. the uninvited, uh, <laughs> let's tell uh, people what Clubhouse is. Yeah. Clubhouse is an audio-only platform. The best way that I can describe it is, you know how when you go to an in-person conference, there are all kinds of things that are happening. There are, there are breakout sessions and keynotes and there are social happy hours and all kinds of things, right? Imagine that you're in an actual hotel hallway and you're looking down this hallway and there are doors off the hallway. And behind each door is one of those things, a panel discussion, a keynote speaker, breakouts, social happy hours, workshops, all kinds of things. But behind the doors, everything that's happening is something that you love because this magical, mystical algorithm has custom curated this hallway to be just for you. So that no matter what door you go behind, you're going to enjoy, for the most part, what you find there. Now, once you go into the room, you can either sit as just like a passive observer and watch and listen. Right. You could be a voyeur. You can raise your hand and kind of interact and participate. You can hop up on the stage if they allow you to, if somebody says, Hey, come on up and like join the panel, or you could be the one that created the room in the first place that brings everybody into it. So I think that when people realize that they're like, Oh, it's like a big interactive conference of things that I would just love and people I would love meeting. It helps them understand how to utilize it a little bit differently. I totally agree with you. So the I have a friend who's uh, in uh, he's in the restaurant business, but he's really on the business side of it. And he was really pushing me to get on. Um, I was like, I already do. I do two radio shows. How many more talking can I possibly do? But I went into one of his panel discussions. I'm calling it a panel discussion. His room, and I that's where the light bulb went on for me because he was leading it. He was talking with people that he knew. But then somebody entered his room and he tagged them in to come up on the panel. And he said, hey, 
Bill, you know, I saw you and I've seen your resume and you and I don't know each other, but it sounds like you might be an expert in this. And so then Bill started talking and I was like, oh, I see what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Like you want to know Bill. And you want to know Bill. And then I bet you right. 10 to one, they connected outside of clubhouse. Right. And created like a really deep, meaningful relationship immediately more powerfully than you would if you were like sending an email and saying, Hey, I think you have great experience and I would love to have you on my show or whatever. It's like, that takes so many steps and there's so many obstacles. This is like immediate. It's like, Oh my gosh, you pulled me up on stage and you think I have it. Now I want to help you. How can I give value back to you? Right. Yeah. It's incredible. So now how do you, how are you utilizing on it? I mean, you've been on it for a while. You seem to really, I I'm still voyeur -ing. I jumped in my, I'll tell you, honestly, I, I jumped, somebody invited me to come up and it was about women entrepreneurs and, you know, working in the industry and having children and all that kind of stuff. And, um, I have much older children than most of the people who were on that panel, but I knew people in there. But uh, there was somebody who came on after me, like we were all talking about not judging one another. And then she was saying some freaky stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm judging. I'm out. I can't. I yeah. can't do this. <laughs> yeah. I'm out. <laughs> I got to leave. You have to still protect like your values and your reputation on Clubhouse, which is why I think it's so important that you listen and see who you would want to be on stage with, who you want to connect with. Right. So the way that I use the platform is a couple. I mean, tonight is my social night on Clubhouse in that there's a great... I. I love wine. I'm not a wine expert, but I love it. And there's a great wine room that happens every Saturday night at eight o'clock. And I last last week uh, it was uh, women winemakers from all over the world were coming and talking about like winemaking. And then the other day, like the one of the kids of like Mondavi, Robert Mondavi, was in there, and I was just chatting about their wine with them. It's like okay, well, I could be down with just drinking wine every Saturday night, talking to people who make wine from around the world. That sounds great to me, right? So I use it for social stuff, but for hobbies that I'm interested in. But for me, I have a club. I've created a club uh, called Wake Up and Win for entrepreneurs who are intentional about making things happen in their business. We have a lot of events under that club, so like I'm creating community there. I lead a lot of rooms around topics around growing your business, sales, public speaking. Um, and it's not, it's not the coming in and teaching. It's literally round table discussions. It's like, tell me what your challenges are. Let's talk about it. Let's connect, let's share. Right. So I do that as well. Um, I help co-moderate other rooms with people who I'm trying to lift up and elevate and they're doing the same for me. So we serve the same target market, but in a slightly different way. So we're growing our audiences. We're growing our community. We are, um, I, I've gotten so many speaking engagements. I mean, as a speaker, no better platform than Clubhouse for that. Um, but I have gotten paid speaking engagements now. I've gotten clients through Clubhouse. I've grown my Facebook community. I've grown my email list, all because I'm very intentional about who I'm talking to, who I'm speaking with, why I'm on there. And I, I factor it into my business strategy. It's like, I have to build awareness in my business. I have to nurture relationships in my business. I just now do it mainly on Clubhouse. And then I have a strategic way that I filter people to other pieces of, of my business. So it's both a business growth tool, but it's also surrounding myself with peers and, and other speakers and other people who are helping elevate different areas of my business from a personal place, like a mentor place, a peer place, and then the, the fun, the, the social. But I will say this, there are also um, some really great charitable causes that are happening that I'm a part of in there now mm -hmm. after the Texas storm. There was a huge 24-hour fundraiser where all of these celebrities and non-celebrities came together, performed music, did things for 24 hours, you know, for 24 hours, raised over $100,000 that went wow. to different nonprofits. Some chefs in Texas uh, rallied together immediately to, um, to link up uh, food supplies 
to like to, to gather food supplies and then they use their kitchens and their restaurants to cook food to then take to shelters and other places where people have been relocated. So the quickness with which people are connecting for charitable all the way to business reasons and getting things done is like instant. It takes like a minute. So those are all the different ways that I'm, I'm kind of playing around and using it. It's just, it, it really is a community. It's not just your normal social media platform. And do you think that um, given its exclusivity at the moment, it allows it to not go down, you know, like the Twitter and Facebook, the misinformation route? Is there somebody monitoring it so that that does not happen? So yes and no in that I think that their slow rollout was smart, right? The slow rollout built like loyalty, built a community. They added more people. They added more people slowly over time. They've been adding more. But what that did was make the users really invested in the platform. So while there's no big like like, like there would be at Facebook or something. I'm assuming there's some big king at Facebook that just hits a button and says, this is not allowed, right? But like in Clubhouse, it's self-reporting. The community has really taken ownership. So if you're hearing hate speech, if you're if somebody's trolling, I mean, it's fast. People have tools to be able to quick report, remove people from rooms, shut down rooms, stop things. And I think that that works because of how they rolled out Clubhouse and how it is a relationship-based platform. People protect each other there. People watch out for each other there. People support each other and so they're not going to allow if I was in your room and somebody came up and tried to troll I would be the one to hit the button and kick them out of the room real quick for you because I care about you and your space right so they do have tools built in for reporting and keeping hate speech off the platform but at the same time still providing a little bit of freedom for the creators to have some of the conversations that they want to have and what I love is that it is community protected the community is really invested in what happens in there and they don't they, as my mom said they don't let shenanigans go on in there <laughs> Uh, so how does this, um, how much time are you spending a day? Cause it sounds like you're spending a ton of time. It and sounds is it. it really, is there a cause and effect? I mean, you said you're getting new clients and speaking gigs. You're finding it as a real way to make money. Yeah, I am. I, I am. It wasn't, it's like a buy. I always tell people, be careful. Don't go into clubhouse with the intention to make money because you're going to do everything incorrectly. You have to go into the intention of giving value, creating relationships. And then the byproduct, right? Is that people are going to want to work with you, hire you, buy your products and services. But again, it sounds like I'm, I'm in there a lot, but it's a strategic part of my business model. So I tell people, look, on a given day, you're going to have to do about three hours of either what I call business building or marketing to grow your business anyway. So I'm just doing it now predominantly over in clubhouse. That's a part of can't outsource. I can outsource a post going up in Facebook. I can outsource my newsletter going up. I can't outsource being Rita and showing up in rooms and speaking. So I still have other components of my business going on with a team. I just choose now for what I do to be in there. To So it's the same as if I went to speak somewhere, if I went to a networking meeting, which, you know, we're not really doing in person yet so much. So I've just kind of like shifted. It's not that I added additional hours. I've shifted. The neat thing is it is kind of like a podcast too, because you can be passive, right? And listen. So like sometimes when I'm doing the dishes or I could just be sitting there listening. And then if I have some value I want to give, I can just raise my hand and say it and then sit back down in the audience. So like I haven't used it in addition to everything I was doing. I kind of replaced some things and I'm just being strategic about it. I don't get... I, everything is intentional on there for me. I don't get sucked down the rabbit hole. I have time blocks for it. I know how I'm using it. And I, I have a way to measure my return on the investment of my time there, which I think is important. Now, the first week. Rita, yeah, yeah. So sorry, I have to interrupt. We're no out of time. Ah. Clubhouse, we actually have a minimum. Yes, very true. How long you can be on. But I'm. you're going to be joining me on Industry Night. 
We're yes. gonna, we are going to go down the rabbit hole on that show. Uh, but I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This was an incredible introduction to Clubhouse. Tell everybody where they can find you, please. Sure. I'm at Rita Goodrow on all the social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, at Rita Goodrow, or you can go to RitaMimiDoIt.com and find all my information there. Excellent. Thanks so much. This is Nikki Nellis and David Nellis on Foodie and the Beast. We'll be back in just a sec. And we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. David is not with us at the moment because we have a really annoying puppy. And since we no longer do this show in a studio and do it from our house, he's dealing with the annoying puppy. Isn't that nice? So you get me again. And I'm so excited because we're bringing back an old friend, Marcel Afram, who has just launched a new concept that is taking over DC. You may remember Marcel as chef at Maidan, uh, but now Marcel is doing something totally new. So Marcel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. All right, so catch me up. Okay, so we have a concept called Shababi Palestinian Rotisserie Chicken. Okay, um, wait, start back, go, go back even further. Okay. Um, how far back? <laughs> well, actually, so you and Chef Robo were on Foodie and the Beast we over were. the summer for the Beirut fundraiser. Is that where this all started percolating? So, so Roro and I uh, met each other via social media um, and, you know, just a couple of um, Middle Eastern chefs in the community. And we just kind of linked up that way and became really good friends. And then... Um, you know, I have connections to Beirut and he is Lebanese. Uh, and when that devastating explosion happened, we knew we had to do something immediately. Uh, so we just collated our people and we were able to raise over $50,000 in direct funds. Um, and then from that point on- That's amazing. Cause you guys did that overnight. Yeah, we did it in four days. Um, and ultimately we actually ended up raising more even after that initial period. Uh, you know, Chef Michael Rafidi did a dinner at, um, all of these that we went that raised like tens of thousands of dollars more for it. Um, so it was really cool to kind of just see like this initiative just like web itself out. Uh, and then, you know, it, it really kind of went all over the East Coast. We had people all the way from Florida up to Massachusetts helping with the fundraising. So uh, it was really amazing to see that happen. And we knew that we had something special there, you know, from the get go, just like being able to say, hey, like, we know, we know we need to do something and get it done, you know, and um, just, I think that, like, really helped our friendship grow. And we knew that in some capacity, we wanted to do something together at some point in time. Uh, I don't think we really knew what it was. And I definitely, like, didn't have a plan to uh, be autonomous at any point, you know, it's just like the way but of the you did want to do this kind of cooking. Yeah. Right. Like, I feel like, you know, you started at Blue Jacket. I mean, that's where your, your name, you know, started being on the right. DC scene when you took over. Um, and then you went to Maidan. It's like this progression. Right. Yeah. But you have always said that that uh, cooking sort of from what you grew up with was really important to you. Yeah, I think it's really important. I think that it's important that it's coming from us who come from that background because you see so much popularity like amongst the cuisine, whether, you know, it's often typed as Mediterranean or whatnot. And the fact is it's really been homogenized and there's so many, there's so much diversity, right, in the region alone. And like, the, whether it's language, ethnicity, religion, uh, there's just so, there's so much. And I always really wanted to hyper-focus at some point to something that I could really relate to and something that I grew up with. 
And that's really when this idea came about. I mean, my family is like from the diaspora of West Asia. You know, I can connect myself to so many regions, ethnicities and countries um, within that area. And the one for me that's always been closest to my heart was Palestine, just because it's really like most recently in my family's history is where the most generations were. And my grandfather who helped raise me just told me so many stories and like the food that my aunts and that came from his side of the family, it just really, really resonated with me. So it was always something that I was really, really passionate about. And I touched on like some of my uh, heritage, like much further back, my Assyrian heritage, which uh, ties itself in when I was at Compass Road, I did a pop-up at Tigris and that was kind of uh, looking at the historical roots, but I definitely wanted to do something that was, you know, just a little closer to home for me. Okay, so let's talk about what that is and how it's being executed with uh, Shababi. So Shababi is, uh, celebrates the Musakhan, which is the Palestinian national dish. It's a chicken dish that is uh, typically seasoned with allspice and sumac and served with taboon bread, uh, which is bread that's cooked on, it's like a flatbread cooked on river stones. Uh, usually, uh, where are they getting these river stones? Are they coming from <laughs> I, I tried driving around <laughs> to find them, and then I realized don't steal things. Mm-hmm. And I also realized this isn't the '90s where everybody decorates everything with rocks anymore. <laughs> right. And in my head, there were rocks everywhere. But as I was driving around, I was like, "That's not a thing." Right. Yeah. So I just bought them. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we par bake them on the stones, and then when we reheat them for service. Uh, where we're doing the pop-up out of is uh, Roro's Kitchen during the day. It's a deli. That's Roro's Modern Lebanese. And then we're operating in the off hours, uh, Thursday through Sunday. Um, they have an oven that's been here for a couple of decades that was imported from Lebanon. So mm-hmm. it's really cool. So it gets like kind of like a double touch, you know. So we, we par-bake them on the, on the river stones and then we reheat them in this like really cool uh, concave uh, oven from Lebanon. And then so the chicken and the bread. And then what else am I ordering when I order from Shababi? So right now we have it, we, we call it the Hazima, which means bundle in Arabic. Um, and we're offering it as a family meal style in the whole chicken and the half chicken. Um, each Hazima comes with three sauces, uh, the bread, za'atar fries, uh, yeah. cucumbers topped with an Aleppo crisp, which I realized, which is really interesting because there's, um, in Palestinian cuisine, there's a Palestinian dukkah, and most people are probably familiar with the Egyptian dukkah, which is peanut-based. Right. Uh, this is very different than it, and essentially all those flavors, um, which are coarse ground spices, really reminded me of uh, chili crisp, and I was like, well, it would only take like a little infusion of ingredients to do that, so we top the cucumbers with that. Of course, we serve it with a very super traditional hummus. Um, Let me ask you a question, because hummus, you know, there's fresh made hummus, which is amazing. And then there's the stuff you buy in the store, which I mean is, you know, sloppy seconds doesn't even cover it. Right. So is there a difference in a Palestinian hummus versus Egyptian hummus, Turkish hummus, uh, Israeli hummus? I I mean, I know the bases are all the same, but is there some difference in the different kinds of hummuses from the different regions? Uh, typically it's a texture thing. It's like how, how much it's processed, but even within that and within those regions, you'll find from house to house, family to family, everybody has their own opinion and iteration. Obviously it's very political and people really take it to heart. Uh, we're finding something that like 
it's really just the way that I grew up eating it. So it's almost silky smooth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little, so that's what I think is really interesting. Like when you have authentic comments, it's, I don't want to say soupy because that's the wrong texture, but it's, it's not, so, it's, it's more, so, a little saucy almost. Yeah. Right? Like you can almost like ladle it. Absolutely. And well, you know, especially I think that part of the reason is that we, we don't eat it cold as well. So it's tempered so that like growing up, we would have hummus just sitting out on the countertop at home, you know, right? Like it's a condiment. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just always there and it's never refrigerated. Granted, of course, we're refrigerating ours, you know, (laughs) at the restaurant. But I think that also has a lot to do with the, with the consistency. And then, you know, like it's a, it's a humble dish and oftentimes um, what in, in the more recent iterations that I've seen people execute it with, they're not actually utilizing any of the liquid that the chickpeas are cooked in. And that's, that's what I said. Um, alfalfa, 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 making drinks with it now. Yeah, they're doing so much cool. with the liquid. Yeah. Right? It has this great, like, uh, kind of glutinous, almost like collagen, like it's like a starchy texture. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so, um, vegans are using it as a way to like, create foams and and thicken things up exactly. uh, yeah. plant-based people right people who eat plant-based diets or vegan diets listen we're gonna have to wrap up soon but i, I mean listen you launched this thing in the middle of the pandemic it's yeah. so amazing what's long which you can only do this what is it thursday friday saturday wednesday thursday friday so we're thursday through sunday right now pre-orders okay. are live on monday at 3 p.m until we sell out we've added more slots just because there's been so much demand thank you everybody okay. it is amazing okay. Um, so you can find it, uh, via toast. Uh, we are launching delivery this week through toast, um, which is doing it via DoorDash. Um, and I'm just going to say this, like people, if you can pick up, please do. They obviously take a big percentage. We are a small business. So I just want to say that as a reminder, but obviously we want to reach as many people as we can with this. So if you want the delivery, get the delivery. We're also offering neighborhood drops. We're trying to schedule at least one a week. Great. Uh, if you are interested in scheduling, uh, just reach us at info at shababichicken.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can stay up to date with us. Uh, we're really active on our social media. We're having Give us your time. handle. Give us your handle. It's uh, Shababi Chicken uh, for Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. Great. Chef Marcel Afram, it's so good to see you. you so and I want to thank uh, everybody for joining us on Foodie and the Beast today. As we do on every show, we ask everybody to please remember we are in the middle of a pandemic and you need to support our restaurants. The neighborhood drop that Chef Marshall just mentioned is exactly what I just did earlier this week and tried to do once a month in my neighborhood and you could do it too. So buy gift cards, order from the restaurants, please don't use third parties unless you absolutely have to. And uh, don't forget, there is so much great stuff happening. Check out the list or you want it.com and follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, because there is lots of delicious things to do, even while you mask up, dip your bodies in hand sanitizer, and socially distance. Everybody, be safe. The light is at the end of the tunnel, and I'll see you next week.